Navigator's Western Operations. Welcome to the Western Edge, a Navigator podcast featuring the latest perspectives on Western Canada's biggest stories. On this episode, we are joined by Navigator's own Kathy Moore and Matt Teamstra. From her Calgary office, Kathy Moore began her career on Parliament Hill and has played key roles in election campaigns across the country, and has also served as the Alberta election co-chair for the Federal Liberal Party in the last three elections. Joining us from Navigator's Ottawa office, Matt Treemstra also brings extensive knowledge of Parliament Hill and was named to the Hill Times Top 100 Lobbyist List in 2021 and 2022. Recently, Matt ran as a Conservative Party Canada candidate in the 2021 election. Keep listening to hear Matt and Kathy's outlook for the year ahead in Parliament. We discuss what to expect from opposition leader Pierre Polyev, the longevity of the NDP Liberal Supply and Confidence Agreement, and whether Prime Minister Trudeau's brand is strong enough to carry the Liberals to victory in the next election, and if he's going to run again. On this episode, we are looking at the dynamics at play in federal politics, and this is The Western Edge. Thanks for joining us today. As you know, we've just wrapped up a mini-series looking back at 2022 in each of our Western Canadian provinces. During those episodes, we also looked a little ahead and took a sneak peek at what might happen in 2023. Well, now it seems like a good time to look at what's happening federally across the country. There's been a lot going on in the past year in 2022 federally. We have a new Conservative leader in Pierre Polyev. We have a supply and confidence agreement between the Liberals and the NDP, and there's speculation, as always, about what will be the future of Canada's Prime Minister. And not too far in the distant future here in 2023, first quarter, maybe beginning a second, we'll be looking at a federal budget. It's been two months since the House of Commons has last been in session, so let's uh, turn to our panelists. What are you paying attention as we come out of the break? Let's start with you, Matt. Great. Thanks so much for having me, Jason. I think I'm really watching for three things uh, since the House of Commons broke, uh, you know, in December, kind of for the Christmas break. Uh, The first thing I'm watching for is really what is the tone of Parliament going to be as we move forward? Uh, You know, this government has now been around for about 16 months. uh, And in the absence of an NDP liberal accord, that would mean it would be about its average lifespan, you know, that any moment it could collapse. But I think it's going to be different now. Uh, with the Liberals and NDP, uh, you know, allegedly agreeing to to govern until 2025. And I think I'm going to be looking really closely at what the federal leaders say to kind of look for chinks in the armor, so to speak, uh, about what the future of that accord may look like. And frankly, just about how nice MPs are to each other uh, in the sandbox that is the House of Commons. So I think that's number one. Number two, uh, you know, I'm sure we're going to have conversations on this podcast about Justin Trudeau's uh, future as prime minister. But regardless of whether he stays or goes, there is this going to be notion of after eight years in government, what is the lasting legacy, you know, of the liberal government going to be? And I really think if if Trudeau were no longer prime minister today, he can already look to uh, child care across the country, indigenous reconciliation, gender and cabinet as things that are going to outlive him. But I really think that what is missing is on his environmental agenda. He's talked about it. Uh, you know, for many years, you know, but has there been uh, a marketed change? So I think we're going to be watching for that legacy building in the environment. And I think on the conservative side, we need to see more policy from the conservatives, Jason, like Pierre's been leader for four months. 
He set the right team. He set the tone. He's identified some some large scale priorities. But what is a conservative government going to do differently uh, if they were to be elected? So I really think I'm going to be watching for that, what the conservatives do on a policy front. So I think tone, liberal legacy and more from the, the conservatives is what I'm watching for. Yeah, we're going to dive into that differentiation uh, a little later here. Kathy, what are you looking at? I mean, we're, we're hearing that, you know, at the caucus level, that that supply confidence agreement between the NDP and Liberals is starting to, to fray a little bit. And we've also got a, an interesting potential budget coming up. Are these the end of days for, for uh, Mr. Trudeau? What are you looking for in the in the coming months? First of all, I think it's really a continuation of the fall when the Liberal government is really focused on two main things, affordability, and the other thing is the new economy whether that is critical minerals, which we hear they talk about all the time, um, new clean tech, environmental uh, type jobs. So I think that uh, will continue. You hear that's the focus in cabinet. Cabinet's meeting right now um, in Hamilton. Caucus is meeting this weekend. I think most of the member of parliaments on both sides, all sides of the house have gone back to their writings. Everyone knows affordability, number one thing. So that's probably going to be the number one focus, I would say, um, coming into those uh, caucus meetings. And I agree with Matt, I think, um, and I know we'll talk more about Mr. Polyev, but I think the actual policy side from the Conservatives needs to come out because it's fine to complain. Everyone can do that about what's going on, but they need to bring some uh, policy to the table. Kathy, maybe just sticking with some of those economic issues. You mentioned affordability and 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 you know really the crisis we're seeing in inflation. I mean, every day we 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 see the price of groceries going up. Um, it's a real challenge for Canadians to make ends meet, and they're making really serious choices right now. Just choices, perhaps they never thought they'd make. So we know we're hearing that the budget looks like it's going to be a similar timing as to last year, maybe in April. We're also hearing there's not a lot of new money, and this is going to be as close as Liberals have ever gotten to maybe an austerity budget or try to tighten the belt budget. Is that what you're hearing, Kathy? What's your take on that? And, and will there still be room for, for maybe some supports on the inflationary side? There's a lot of money spent during COVID. Is there going to be any left to, to battle this crisis? I agree. A lot of money spent uh, during COVID. Um, but first of all, I agree on the budget timing. President Biden, uh, it is uh, widely known he's probably coming in early March to Canada. So that probably times right in April. And again, on this budget, I think building off the fall economic statement, which was, again, affordability measures where it's like, I think they were doubling the GST credit and the child care programs, things to make, you know, everyone, you know, somehow be able to get through this inflationary times. I think you will see more of, you know, work in that dental care, pharma care space uh, probably coming down. We hear that there's a potential health care agreement. So that are things that I think are going to be highlighted in the budget. Matt, the Conservatives in, in some ways have recently started focusing on waste. So there's been talk about contracts that have been given out to consulting companies and the like. Where, where do you see the Conservatives' position going into budget? On one hand, they want to be seen as good fiscal managers, but if the Liberals are going in a, in a bit of a tightening belt role, how do they advocate and differentiate themselves, as you talked about, you know, on that affordability piece, on the inflation piece, the issues that really matter to Canadians? Yeah, I mean, Jason, you're asking the million dollar question and uh, the leader that can answer that question is going to be prime minister at the next election, right? I mean, both Pierre himself was out earlier than Trudeau, I think, in talking about affordability. Uh, but certainly, you know, as we read uh, what the outcome of this cabinet retreat is for the liberals, you know, affordability is the first thing that's mentioned. So each party knows it. Each party knows Canadians are hurting. But I don't think either party has really come through 
you know, with measures that really addressed it and, and what government is actually in a capable, you know, of doing. So I think how you answer that is going to be really key uh, on the conservatives. Look, these controversies around government contracts, they've always been around. They will continue to be around. Uh, it is interesting political theater. Um, and in some ways, as it adds to a liberal narrative that the conservatives are writing about scandal after scandal, it is a bit of a snowball effect. But taken on its own, it's not the silver bullet uh, that I think the conservatives uh, wanted or needed to be. Um, so when I look at the budget, you know, from a liberal perspective, the one thing I would say through a political lens, the only thing this budget has to do for the liberals is get the support of the NDP, right? So we are now 10 months into the liberal NDP accord. There's been a lot of saber rattling about has it been enough? Can Singh continue to support the liberals? And so he has to be able to support this budget. And the only way the NDP support this budget is if there's real money for healthcare, right? All right, so, so let's, let's stick there for a quick second. So Matt, how confident are you that we're going to be able to, that Minister Freeland is going to be able to deliver a budget without new spending when the NDP are threatening to take away their support? How real do you think that is? So I think it's real because I think the budget, all the new spending is about healthcare and nothing else, right? I think what we've heard from many different sources is that MPs are not being consulted on what they want. You know, normally MPs would be asked, you know, for your writing or for your ministry, what are your top priorities? And I don't think those kinds of consultations are happening this time because you can't spend money there and spend money on healthcare, right? So the premiers have agreed they had a disastrous meeting with Duclo kind of at the end of last year, uh, you know, which they said, you've got to be at the table for money. So I just, I think the expectations here have to be around funding for healthcare so that the NDP signs up. Kathy? Well, not only that, but I mean, we know just on a personal basis, all of us living in Canada, the strains that were on the healthcare care system during the pandemic and continue on. And I think that's really at the level of, you know, nurses and doctors frontline who are probably so burnt out, plus, you know, now just builds and builds every year. And so, I mean, I know, you know, MPs on the ground may not get those priority items that they may normally want, but healthcare is pretty much agreeable, a number one issue across Canada. We see that in polling. So, you know, of course, it's going to be a focus in this budget. Well, let's stay on healthcare because, you know, there's no quick fix. And, and we've talked about this on this podcast. There's been rarely in our country an honest dialogue, right? There's, there's a lot of talk about private versus public, but never an honest dialogue of the role that private delivery of healthcare system in a publicly funded system actually plays right now and could play in the future. We've seen a lot of discussion back and forth. Matt, you references, referenced you know, difficulties with first minister meetings and the like, and we haven't seen a first minister's meeting in this, in this country for quite some time and not under this current regime recently at all. We hear rumors that it's coming. This agreement's been really difficult to find. Kathy, where do you see things going? How optimistic are you that we're gonna get a healthcare deal across all provinces and territories? I am optimistic, you know, not to give a history lesson, Jason, but, you know, me and you came from the days when First Minister's conferences actually happened annually and a lot of great, great shows, too. I mean, that was like must see TV for us politicos. We used to study those in school and all that. And, you know, (laughs) I, I think they're very important. And I would actually just like that to be an annual thing rather than uh, when crises hit across the country. Right. 
I think there's a very good chance of an agreement being made, um, again, on a very important issue. I know there's been some discussion on the federal government tying it to a certain delivery uh, by the provinces, but I agree with that. I think it's just like a private sector deal, like KPIs, like, you know, if I'm going to give you money, I want to see what you're going to give me for this. So I actually agree that is probably the new way of things being done. Do you think that is going to play in, in Quebec and and, uh, and Alberta, for example? Well, we'll have to see. <laughs> That's a good way out. Matt, what are, what are your thoughts? You know, are we going to get a deal? And is, do you think it's going to turn into a first minister's conference? Yeah, if I had to guess, uh, we're going to see a first minister's conference in which they agree to the principles of a deal. And then we kind of see the money uh, in the budget in April. Will the um, prime minister be a full participant in that? Or is he going to do a little pop by, maybe drive by and wave hello? I think he drops by. I think you have to let Duclos carry it because if it doesn't go well, you know, if the premiers, you know, don't get the agreement they think they're going to, it's it's better for his health minister to wear it than for him. He'll be there at the signing ceremony. So you think but they're going to be, you're, you're with Kathy, you think they're going to be able to overcome the notion of funding being tied to specific deliverables, specific, specific commitments, or do you think you're going to see opt-out clauses and the like? So... Frankly, um, I think that Ford and Legos so of both Ontario and Quebec have already signaled their willingness to accept conditions. And so if you've got the two biggest provinces in Confederation already willing uh, to do that, I, I, I basically think it's a done deal. I think in normal times, you know, nothing bothers the provinces more than being told how to spend money from Ottawa. Uh, you know, I think we've seen that time and time again. But with every province's healthcare kind of in disarray and needing repair, you know, it would be hard for Ford to go back to his voters to say, look, you know, the federal government offered me money, but I just didn't like the contract. So I said, no, I don't know that that's a defendable position. Right. And so, you know, Ford's got his own election. Now, Ford's got three years, I think, to go before his election. But I just think that given the crisis it's in, uh, that he needs to agree to whatever the terms are. And on the other hand, you know, you've seen Trudeau playing nice with Ford, right? So you've got Ford made this announcement about using, you know, private clinics to get things like cataracts under control and more MRIs, you know, and the prime minister called it innovation. Uh, you know, he didn't pick a fight there. So that you're, you're seeing them dance on eggshells. Uh, but I think that under normal circumstances, you wouldn't see conditions fly. But I think that coming out of COVID, when we know money is limited, I don't think the, the provinces have a choice but to accept the conditions coming from the federal government. So it's a real win uh, for the liberals as well. It's also, to me, it strikes me as almost a perilous road for them to be going down, both the provinces and the feds, because, you know, you risk throwing money at a problem and not seeing results. And I think that would be something that would really frustrate Canadians, because we know, as Kathy's described, you know, frontline, frontline workers, they're at the brink. They're burnt out, and and we can all certainly understand why, and show, and and have a lot of compassion for for those that are working and dedicating their lives to that sector. But if we don't see results on the ground, on you know, right right at the front lines, I think Canadians will get frustrated. And that kind of brings us to pharmacare. That's an area that really ties healthcare and affordability together. And we're hearing rumors that perhaps a pharmacare deal is is close. I know the NDP are suddenly, well, they've always been pushing for it, but they've got quite loud recently, which makes me wonder if they think there's a deal close and they're looking to get perhaps a little bit of attention for that. Uh, maybe Matt will stick with you. Do you think we're going to see pharmacare deals? We have rumor that Ontario might have one almost in place. Yeah. So if you look at, I think what has to be your Bible 
for politics moving forward is normally you could look at the election platform of each party. Uh, in this case, I think you have to look at the very formal liberal NDP pacts, right? It was written out, there was six or seven priorities. And one of the priorities was that a Pharmacare Act would be passed in 2023, right? And so that was in black and white. It was an NDP uh, expectation for this deal. So whether it's passed or introduced, we can quibble over that. Uh, but I think there has to be movement on this deal, uh, you know, for the NDP. I think that's really important for them uh, to move forward. Kathy, yourself, how confident you are? And will it be good for the Liberals if they are able to, to pull this off? So first of all, in 2019, it was part of the Liberal platform. That's uh, right. And there are certain members of caucus, a number of candidates who ran, some candidates I know that ran solely on the reason of pharmacare. And so it is important, of course, COVID hit, so priorities rearranged. So you didn't see in 2021 that push. But I agree with Matt. I think that's something that uh, both parties agree on. You know, if they can get something through, at least like an initial draft of something, uh, I think especially in Ontario would uh, really bode well for um, the political liberal and NDP fortunes. Maybe I'll just jump in and say like the average Canadian doesn't necessarily appreciate where the funding for healthcare comes from, right? So the, the province and the federal government, you know, both have roles. But, you know, I remember, you know, as a candidate for the Conservatives in the last election, Aaron O'Toole had a pledge to double the health transfers. It was a huge amount of money. It was single-handedly the biggest uh, item in that platform, you know, but that wasn't enough and, it, and not a lot of ink was spilled on it, right? And so you'd have candidates at the door uh, you know, they'd be complaining about Ford and saying, well, I can't vote conservative federally because of that, not appreciating the conservatives at that time were willing to double it. Right. And so my point is that when you talk about the, the province and the, the federal government, they have to work together because they both will share blame if it falls apart. You know, it, it's very interesting to see that this cooperation between the federal and provincial government seems to be largely driven in some ways by the Ontario, by the Doug Ford Trudeau relationship. I, I think it's all fair to say that, you know, Quebec has also been, been at the table, Matt, you referenced it, you think you said you think there's a deal already done there. So, but more publicly, we're seeing that that reference to that Ford-Trudeau relationship. You know, the backdrop, of course, has been tension between the provincial and federal governments. We've seen sovereignty acts or, or, or the like appear in Saskatchewan. We've seen them here in the province that I reside in, in Alberta. Where do you see, Kathy, the state of the federation right now? Are we going to see sort of a continued breakdown of these federal-provincial relationships as we've seen in Western Canada in particular? Or is the, the Doug Ford-Legault, you know, sort of quiet diplomacy model going to really rule the day? You know, and we all know this uh, on this podcast, but, you know, a lot a lot goes on behind the scenes. Deputy ministers from the federal government speak to deputy ministers in the provinces, you know, there's a lot of work that is not, you know, on the front pages of every paper. And I mean, I hope quiet diplomacy uh, is the route that it goes. I think the Saskatchewan and Alberta situations are just political rhetoric for the most part, you know, and I think eventually we will get past that and uh, be able to move forth and, you know, do some good because people want people to work together. It's kind of one of the number and Matt, you probably heard this on the doors. I mean, people just want their lives to be back to normal and people working together rather than, you know, all the fuss back and forth. 
But the rhetoric, it, it, man, it goes both ways, right? I mean, we saw the prime minister in Saskatchewan recently, and apparently the premier of Saskatchewan didn't know, and then there was apologies. You know, there, there are folks that elected Daniel Smith in Alberta within the party of the UCP. So there is a voice of frustration out there. How do you see these tensions uh, playing out? Can, can it be solved with a health care agreement? Yeah, I don't know that it can ever be solved. Far be it for me as somebody from Ontario and Ottawa to tell uh, Westerners uh, you know, that Ottawa is here to help, um, you know, and, and, <laughs> right I, and I can't even talk about the degree to the frustration of, of wanting uh, to separate or the frustration that Alberta's feeling. I think too much, you know, so we talk about So I think there's two motions, right, both in Saskatchewan uh, with the Saskatchewan First Act and in Alberta with this Alberta Sovereignty Within the United Canada Act. I mean, I think it's rhetoric. I think at the end of the day, it works. And I mean, let's go back to Quebec, right? And I was uh, around in, in the Harper era as a staffer, you know, and back in 2006, you know, Harper passed this Quebec motion that's now infamous, right? That they would recognize the Quebec nation within a United Canada, right? So Quebec already did this move, you know, 15 years ago. And I think it's just taken a, a while for the West to catch up. So I think ultimately, both of those acts in Saskatchewan and Alberta, they'll figure out a way to make them them constitutional, but they just they just want to be heard. And I think the challenge here is you have to look at this through a political lens. Like, where are the votes of the Liberal Party in Alberta and Saskatchewan? They aren't there. You know, there, there's no government to be made for the Liberals by... Uh, I'll say the word pandering and you guys can jump all over it, uh, you know, to Alberta and Saskatchewan. So the Liberals have to figure out a way to keep their base of support happy, which is largely Ontario, Quebec, B.C. But, you know, Trudeau also doesn't want Confederation to fall apart under his watch. Uh, so I think to your original point, healthcare will go a long way to healing some wounds, uh, but they'll always be there. And frankly, you know, Trudeau does better when there's a conservative bad guy in the room. Right. I mean, sure, the, the Ford Trudeau government seems to be on the men's. But if you remember past elections, you know, it wasn't Andrew Scheer that was the public enemy in that election. It was Doug Ford, you know, and there may be an electoral advantage if Danielle Smith is still premier when Trudeau was looking to win his next mandate. You know, Kathy, that really segues nicely into the Just Transition Act. Of course, that's a piece of legislation that we haven't quite seen yet, but but it's anticipated soon, and it, it's designed to create supports for workers in traditional energy industries uh, as they move into either a renewable industry or uh, participate in in sort of a new decarbonized era of traditional energy production. But it's being seen and presented in this country in very different ways. In some areas of the country, perhaps in Ontario, Quebec, it seems like the federal government is positioning this as transitioning workers out of the energy industry. Out in, in Alberta, you see a debate of whether that's what the Liberal government's going to do. But then you have the energy industry coming out recently saying, hey, whoa, we, we need your best and your brightest. We need it now. We're trying to solve climate change. We're trying to lower the carbon emissions, in fact, eliminate carbon emissions or decarbonize, if you will, from traditional uh, oil and gas sources or energy sources, if you will. How does that fit in in the just transition? How does that fit in to how we are working as a federation? And do you think it is dangerous for the government or for Mr. Trudeau to be presenting it different ways in different parts of the country? Or is that just politics? Maybe it's just good politics. Well, and I, I would disagree. I don't think he is uh, presenting it in different ways. I think specifically in Western Canada, the provincial governments um, have, especially the Alberta one, have jumped on this rhetoric. You know, 
the Just Transition Act or whatever it's going to be called. I mean, that term, it's a horrible term. We all agree with it. That comes from the United Nations, where it is used by 120 countries around the world. And it is not meant to displace workers. It is to provide some skills trainings to new industries. You know, I think you're going to see this bill called something different, like uh, the sustainable job bill or something like that. And well, we were talking about this the other day, right? I mean, a lot of people in Western Canada have blown up about the name. Not the substance, but the name. That seems to me, if I'm doing liberal strategy, which I'm not, but it would be easiest thing to change. Just change the name to something a little okay. nicer sounding. It sounds like that's what they might do. I would suspect that's what it will be happening. But, you know, and it's it's a, it's a simple concept of just, you know, providing training for someone like in Southern Alberta who works like in the coal industry, giving some skills training to help them work on a hydrogen project. So I think it's quite good. I think it's going to include a lot of money into the Western provinces, you know, and and you've seen like the energy industry, some of the CEOs come out in favor of it. So I think right now it is very much in rhetoric. I think bills just being introduced early in the session, we're told there's going to be time for people for consultations and stuff. So we'll see like the uh, inside of the bill. And I just think I actually see it as a positive. I mean, here we all work at Navigator on this podcast and we are always learning about new things ourselves. And I think it's great, right? It helps us, you know, with more client work, et cetera. So I think that's the way it should be viewed in a positive manner. Well, you know, Matt said that perhaps, you know, you're not going to move the needle if, if you're the Liberals looking for seats in Saskatchewan and in Alberta. But boy, oh boy, we're going to have just transition or whatever they're going to call it. We're going to have potentially emissions cap all talked about in the backdrop uh, during the backdrop of an Alberta provincial election. I can guarantee you those issues will will play out there. But let's stick federal and, and let's go to the political side. We've talked a lot about issues already today. Just a quick one on, on Jagmeet Singh and the NDP. We've seen in recent weeks... A little bit of cake and eat it too. Uh, I think we've seen perhaps the most pointed uh, the leader of the NDP nationally has been in Jagmeet Singh towards the, the, the federal government, even has gone so far as to say they may withhold support of the budget if they don't get things they want. But at the same time, they do have this supply and confidence agreement and they are propping up this government. Perhaps they didn't quite get the credit for the dental, uh, for, for the dental coverage that we have. The Liberals seem to have done well on that. Do you think, Kathy, that, that Jagmeet Singh is going to be able to keep this up effectively? And at the end of the day, is he just really playing into the Liberals' hands? Well, he's put himself in a tough position. Um, and I think, you know, not only does, I think there's people in his true base who have been longtime NDP voters don't like it when the Liberals do take credit. And I pretty much guarantee they will take credit for everything that happens. Um, <laughs> no, not Liberals. They'd never do that. <laughs> take credit on both sides. So I can see the frustration uh, as an NDP voter. And you can tell, you know, I mean, he hasn't been able to fundraise. Uh, so on one day he has to, you know, yell about the agreement and the next day he's signing on. So he's really put himself in a tough position, which is his to get out of, I guess. Yeah, there's an expression about protesting too much. I, I wonder if they have the funds to run a federal election right now. How about from your perspective, Matt? You know, conservatives often do well when there's a strong NDP. Um, how do you think this plays into the electoral uh, scenario for the conservatives? Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating question, right? I mean, you know, for the Liberals to survive, they need the support of the NDP. But if you were to play this out, and let's say the Conservatives won a minority, you know, where do they get their support from, right? It, it's just, it's it's a different ball game, right? And so, you know, for the NDP, you know, they've they've been in this position before where they control the balance of power, you know, but they are very rarely rewarded with more seats at the next federal election, right? So that's their whole 
problem, you know, and they have to decide, do they actually think they can form government or do they think that they're just the party that gets concessions, you know, out of government? For my mind, the problem is actually now that we're losing the soul of the NDP party and it's becoming the Jagmeet Singh party, right? And it's all about what he has done and he wants to position himself uh, you know, as the new father of Medicare, right? And he brought in dental care. Uh, you know, I agree. I don't think Canadians are too fussed about who brought it in. You know, they're just excited that, you know, for for under, you know, certain income level, they, they get their teeth taken care of for their kids, right? And so there's this game that Singh is playing. Well, no, I deserve all the credit because we held their feet to the fire. But the liberals were very masterful at introducing and pretending like it was their ideal all along. And, and I think that that narrative is winning. The other thing for the conservatives electorally is, you know, uh, Stephen Harper's majority government, you know, happened when the liberals and NDP split the vote. Right. And so a strong NDP has always been a key success factor for uh, conservative wins. Right. I mean, 30 percent of this country probably votes conservative no matter what, no matter who's leader. Right. So it's a battle for that last 10 percent. Right. And so strategically, the conservatives need a strong NDP party. They don't necessarily need a strong leader. You know, and Singh is really balancing that. Like, look, this budget is probably already written. It was probably already written a long time ago. Um, you know, so I could see this budget passing, you know, but it's the next budget and it's phase two of dental care and it's pharmacare that are really going to test this accord. Okay, so that means Matt's already got him into, into 2024, Silla, but I'm going to come back to that. We're not going to get into prognostication of elections yet. Um, but let's stick with you, though, Matt, on uh, the new conservative leader. You know, he definitely spent the first couple of months listening, consulting. We, we heard that he was meeting with individual MPs, meeting with stakeholders, and really is kind of reshaped, I think, the OLO, the, the office, of the, the leader of the opposition. But he was quiet in the media, uh, very aggressive in the House, very effective in the House, one, one I think could say. But he, he really avoided doing media. And that was became almost a point where it came a story uh, heading into the holidays. Now we're seeing him come come out and doing a little bit more media. We're certainly seeing a use of social media a lot and videos and the like, and really focusing on those pocketbook issue of Canadians. What do you think Canadians are watching for from the opposition leader? And is this media strategy going to work? Is he connect, actually connecting with Canadians? Do they hear him? Yeah. I think one of the obstacles that Pierre has to overcome is that Pierre has been in the spotlight for so many years now. Uh, and from such a young age, that Canadians have seen him grow up, right? You know, we've seen him get elected. We've seen him as that, you know, that attack bulldog type persona. We've seen him win a leadership being fairly aggressive, you know, and now I think Canadians are looking, okay, you, you've made it to the top position. We've watched you, we know your style, you know, but do I actually see you as a prime minister in waiting? And what does that look like, right? And so I think, you know, that four months of him being, of, of him being leader now, it was about establishing the right team. And it was about giving some space to let some of the leadership comments maybe disappear, right? I mean, remember the leadership, you know, Piero talked about cryptocurrency, he talked about freedom, he talked about vaccines, he talked about the convoy, you know, and those issues have largely disappeared. Uh, and it's probably better for the conservative narrative. You know, news today is saying that uh, Melissa Lansman, the deputy leader, is out there being quoted as saying, look, once the House resumes, we're going to be more vocal. Uh, you know, there's going to be more policy. There's going to be more points of differentiation. And once you give Pierre something to talk about, about how he's going to be markedly different, I think he's really going to shine. 
you know, you can accuse Pierre of a lot of things, but of he, he's going to be one of the smartest politicians in the room. And I think that cool down period after the election was warranted, you know, but you can't ignore the media forever, um, you know, and it starts becoming the story. So I think you're going to see a different approach in this sitting of parliament. Kathy, what are your thoughts? I mean, we saw Stephen Harper be very successful at, you know, not he didn't ignore the the Ottawa Press Gallery, but he kind of managed his time with them and really focused more on regional media. Uh, and, and that wasn't specialty media per se, but but actual regional media out in the different provinces and the communities there. And he spent a lot of time. Can that be effective for Pierre? Well, first of all, I, you know, I've always wondered this. I don't know why you run just even as a candidate if you are not going to do media, you should be proud of what you stand for. You should be out there telling your messages. And I've always wondered this, and especially the, I I actually thought Harper was pretty good. Yes, he did more regional, but I, you know, he was pretty good with the media, you know, with uh, Aaron O'Toole and um, now Pierre, just that limited amount. I don't understand. Like there's nothing to hide, right? Put your ideas out, let people know about it in every fashion, whether traditional media to social media. It's good to do regional media. I hearken back to many people complaining about uh, Prime Minister Trudeau saying one thing in one part of the country and other things in another part. Um, So if you're only talking to one part of the country, I don't know (laughs) about the rest of it. But um, I do hope that, uh, as we discussed before, that uh, the Conservatives bring some uh, good policy options and ideas to committee, et cetera, uh, in this legislature. So maybe we'll we'll shift gears from the Conservatives back over to the Liberals, Kathy, and and of course, you know, the future of the Prime Minister. And we know New Zealand's Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, just announced last week uh, that she'll be stepping down as leader of that country before the next uh, election. Does this, as some suggest, provide a blueprint for a graceful exit strategy for, for the Prime Minister Trudeau? Uh, I know we've even heard some Liberals have suggested that. I hear from Eastern Canada, but... Uh, uh, what are you hearing? And do you think that's uh, wishful thinking by conservatives? Or uh, do you think there is a blueprint there and and, and his days are numbered? Uh, well, first of all, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau has been the leader of the Liberal Party since 2013. So I would argue that he has the right to decide when he wants to leave, unless he's brought down by in a minority parliament. Of course, uh, this is, um, you know, it's challenging after the many years of government that we've seen under Prime Minister Kretchen, Prime Minister Harper, you know, it's that's just a natural. But uh, the one thing I would say is I would never count out Justin Trudeau. He will do what he wants when he wants. And I am very much expecting him to be the leader going into the next election. Does, he, does his brand have that sustaining power? I think if he focuses on the right things, his brand can have staying power. Okay, Matt, over to you. What do you think? Is that, you know, are Canadians starting... To, to fatigue of the style of Trudeau, or do you think that, you know, he's got he's got that sort of opportunity to redefine himself or position himself going into the next election? He seems eager to take on, on Pierre, to be honest with you. Well, look, that's what you always say. You're always running until you're not, right? But listen, I kind of believe in the adage that Canadians are more likely to vote out governments than to vote them in, right? And so I think If I go back to the last election, the Conservatives did really well in not, you know, Aaron O'Toole had a full platform. He wasn't kind of that scary Conservative leader, but they weren't quite sure if they could trust him. And there was a visible feeling of, we're kind of tired of all these liberal issues and scandals. 
but you know they treated us well money flew during covid and we were treated well and and they kind of got a pass right and so the only reason you trigger an election now is if you think you can get a majority and i don't see those issues on the table so i don't see a position in which the liberals kind of trigger an election um and i think that trudeau uh, wants to be prime minister for as long as he can. I think there's only five prime ministers that served longer, uh, you know, than 10 years, right? And so I think that by holding on to this accord, that really gets them, you know, to that point. Uh, so I think he's in it for the long run. I think a Trudeau versus Pierre battle will be very interesting to watch. They, they both truly seem to want it. You know, it's going to be interesting to see who amongst the leaders can maybe tacked away from what they're doing right now, which is, you know, you're getting this wrong. These Canadians are upset about it. Uh, are we going to see a, a leader that steps up and starts to unify the country? Because to me, that might be the recipe for uh, for for real change or, or to perhaps stay on a little longer. But that would require a fairly significant pivot on on either side of the of the two main parties. All right, I got to ask it. We'll finish up this way. Prognostication time. What do you think, Matt? We're going to have an election this year. No. Oh, that's just too definitive. How about do you, you, want, Kathy, you want a longer you... answer? Um, <laughs> look, I think the Conservatives have work to do. Um, I think Pierre's numbers in Quebec are not great. His uh, numbers uh, amongst uh, women are not great. Um, so they've got some work to do. The NDP has got a lot of influence now. I don't think they get more seats if they go to the polls. And I think the Liberals can only justify triggering an election as if they think they can get a majority. And I don't see that in the cards right now. Anything can change in the next year. Uh, the other thing I'd mention is Elections Canada is doing some quiet work right now to redraw the boundaries across this country. You know, and so you kind of want to let Elections Canada do its thing so that the next election can be done under those boundaries. So I think there's a lot of factors here that line up and say, listen, it's not going to happen. Kathy, is this something that liberals and conservatives agree on? No election this year? We do agree. Uh, <laughs> you heard it first on the Western that. Edge, folks. <laughs> we agree. Unifying on... the country one podcast at a time. We, I see the earliest it happening in May 2024 when the new riding boundaries come into effect. Well, you're both pretty compelling for your reasons, although everybody knows on this call anyway what uh, what I have on my bingo card. I like the fall of 2023 this year as a window. I'm getting shaking heads, listeners, uh, on on, uh, on the Zoom here. Uh, but I think there's going to be a window open up. I don't think the, the NDP can, can wait, uh, can wait uh, into the next year without falling into complete irrelevancy. But what do I know? I'm just the host. Thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. It's been a real treat. Thanks, Jason. Western Edge is powered by Navigator, Canada's leading high-stakes public affairs firm. This episode was produced by Krista Hudson, Zoe Kirstead, and Theodora Till. I want to extend a very big thank you to our colleagues, Kathy and Matt, for joining us on this episode and sharing their perspectives on the federal scene. Western Edge will be on a brief hiatus as we prepare episodes for the busy coming months in Alberta politics. Be sure to subscribe to the show on your preferred podcast platform to get all of our episodes directly to your device. If you enjoyed this episode, follow us on Twitter at Western Edge by Nav to stay up to date on all of our episodes. As always, Thank you for joining us and listening to The Western Edge.